You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. To, to speak to some of the things that Molly says, uh, one of the things I made, which was startlingly easy and amazingly good because I'm a guy who would like to, you know, eat a lamb shank that looks like something out of the Flintstones, is this <laughs> North African red lentil soup in here. For one thing, she says, she talks about these red lentils, they're actually orange, not red, and turn a deep golden yellow when cooked, which is, I mean, it's true. And that's really helpful because I'm looking for red lentils at, at first, and, and I'm thinking, where are the red lentils? There's nothing red here. But no, they're orange, and they do turn gold. Yeah. So you do know that you haven't, like, wrecked it immediately as you cooked it. <laughs> and, and it's also, this is super easy. There's, like, practically nothing in it. But it's Well, it's like Anna's description of her split pea soup. It's almost the same yeah. idea. Yeah. It's the, a lot of the most wonderful food is very, very simple like that. And this is why I harp so much on using great ingredients. Use re- and I don't mean 50-year-old balsamic vinegar necessarily. I just mean really get good tomatoes or really have good olive oil. Really do use good ingredients because the most wonderful foods are made with often with three or four ingredients and they're fabulous but you cannot hide. You cannot hide. And why would you ever think that you could take, you know, a series of mediocre things and, you know, put them together in a pot and come out with something good? That's not going to happen, you know? I mean, good ingredients though don't uh, don't have to be expensive. No, no, they, they don't. They just have to be good. Yeah. I mean, it's not that it, none of this is rocket science. You can any all of you here can grab these things. And one of the things I like about these recipes is I think and I want to ask uh, the ladies about this, is the way I tend to do use a, a, a cookbook like this is the first one, it comes out, I, I just do it like a chemistry experiment, literally. I mean, it, 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 just to, to, to get a what I call a calibration so I can see what she's trying he's, to do. He's so cute because he's a new convert, so he's like very, he's very excited because his this recipes is, have worked This is scaring him. me, Rick. <laughs> no. Well, and what I like about Molly's, Molly's book and, and Anna's book is, you know, they have these ideas of, like, get creative. And I think that's the nice thing is once you've got the template down, you kind of know what you're trying to do. Yeah. I'm hoping that you ladies think that what all of these people in the audience should be doing is they cook it once the way it's supposed to be, and then you just use whatever you have to hand. And just make sure you have good stuff to hand, and 99% of the time you're going to have a great meal, and uh, it'll be easy, and you can uh, have it cleaned up, and you'll look forward to cooking it. Now, this all involves, of course, plying yourself with the right amount of beer, wine, or whatever you, whatever gets you cooking, and that's the idea is to get cooking. Well, I think that um, the best, my favorite way to cook, and a lot of people have told me that they feel the same way, and the best way is without any recipe at all. And it's, it's really when you, when you really just feel like doing something and you've just maybe been to the market or you, you, there's some ingredient or some piece of whatever, some, some piece of food, some produce that inspires you to think, oh, I, th- this would be good with that. Oh, I think I'd like to do this. And you just start cooking without even thinking about it too much and just sort of feel your way through it and do what seems right and enjoy yourself. And that is... Um, the most wonderful way to cook. And I very often have to completely liberate myself from the idea of any kind of note-taking and any kind of measuring and things like that and just cook. Just cook and have a good time and relax and follow my nose and do it. And then if something turns out fantastic, (laughs) then I have to go back, you know, if I want to share it with other people and try to recreate that. And then I do rigorously measure and weigh and apply all the, um, you know, all, all the discipline that you need to apply in order to be able to write a good, solid, dependable recipe that other people will not fail with. I, I want to, you reminded me of something that I'd like to confess publicly, since you're all my best friends here. Um, <laughs> I have actually, people, one, one um, question I actually hate, so if I tell you I hate it, nobody will ask it tonight. Or you can ask Anna, I don't care, just kidding. People say, how, how do you come up with your recipe ideas? Who was going to ask that one? <laughs> ask her. Um, but actually, I have an answer okay. for this question that I hope you won't ask. This is something that um, is, is really kind of funny, um, that um, I have had on more than one occasion the experience of 
of kind of coming home from the farmer's market or the grocery store, and I'm kind of sorting things out and putting them away. And I, I tend to set up little still lifes because I'm also a painter, and I like to draw the, you know, make, you know, com you know like, so I compose. So I'd stare at the food for a while and then think, maybe I'll eat it someday, but right now I'm just looking at it. And, um, and sometimes I'll nibble on it. And sometimes I'll have this kind of cartoon moment where I'll have nibbled on two things kind of in a row, and I'll go, oh my god, those two things went really well together. And I'll come up with a new recipe based on having been nibbling on stuff. That and I've talked about it a little bit in some of the, like, just two things that I would not, not normally juxtapose. Like one time I had been in my garden and I was kind of checking my herbs, and I took a little bite of a piece of basil, and then I came in the house, and um, for a snack I, I sliced an apple. And I had this eureka moment because I thought, oh my gosh, apples and basil go really well together. Who would have thought, you know? So then I created this little saladita, which is what I call like a little salad with, which is kind of a cross between a salad and a salsa, um, which you could use as a relish on top of something or as a salad on, or as a palate cleanser. I made this apple basil saladita with a little lime juice and a little olive oil. And it was fantastic. I would not have thought of that, but I was like, nibbling. And I thought, oh my God, that really went Doesn't well that together. Sound good? It, it, it sounds so good. It's you know, I, I just have to say, I, I'm really delighted to be here because Molly is such a wonderful cook and a wonderful writer. And I've had books of hers in my kitchen for years and years and years. And I've enjoyed them so much. And when she started talking about being a painter, I was thinking about Still Life with Menu. Does anybody here have Still Life with Menu? What a beautiful book that is. And uh, it, it just, I, I just think she's great. Okay, so I just wanted to say that. And when she was describing the apples with the basil, I thought, hmm. And if anybody asks me, how do I get all my recipes? My, I just, I'll, just, I'll just steal them from Molly. That's not true, but wait. The only thing you just stole was you stole my thunder because I was going to say the same thing about you. Because, in fact, I mean, this isn't, this isn't to pull any kind of age rank because we're about the same age. But Anna was my hero. For years, she predates me in terms of uh, publishing a cookbook. Just so I just want you to know. I'd like so you to Anna's meet my daughter Molly. No, everybody, <laughs> she's just she got hers done sooner or something. But um, we I opened this little not very good cafe with my brother and some friends in 1973, and we had one cookbook in that in the, it was the Moosewood restaurant. And we had a cookbook that we cooked from, and it was the Vegetarian Epicure. I know. You were just asking me when that, I think it came out in 73. Moosewood cookbook didn't come out until 1974. Oh. And the edition of Moosewood that came out in 74 was um, a self-published small version that none of you, I hope, have seen. It was not the 10-speed press of, uh, edition that most that people That would know. be the collector's item, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's pretty <laughs> funky. Yeah. It's, oh, pretty, it's pretty uh, stream of consciousness, and it's really... Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, but you were our, our, our big Document. influence. We used to sit there pouring over the vegetarian epicure, hoping you'd write a second book, because we, uh, we just couldn't get enough of you. And so you were our heroine. I just want you to know. And then the other thing that, that is a true confession is that in 1976 or 77 few of you were alive at this time. Um, I was thinking of writing a second cookbook. I, I did tell you this. I think I told you this. Maybe you forgot. Um, and, I, and then I heard that Anna Thomas had written a vegetarian epicure book, too, that came out, I think, in 78? Possibly. That could be right. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to make some notes, and I'm going to put in, a, you know, get some outlines going of what I'd like to do next. But first, before I can do anything, I need to, make, I need to see what Anna did because I want to be sure we're not writing the same thing. And, w and she came first, so like whatever, I, I couldn't, so I couldn't start my second cookbook until, uh, until Anna's second cookbook came. I don't think I did tell you this. So I waited and waited and waited and waited. I was calling the bookstore, is the new one out yet? Is it out yet? And I'd go to, I went to the store and I, and I was like, oh, please, God, let her, let her have a different outline than mine, because I didn't want to write the same book as you. And I opened it up and it was a totally, you covered totally different ground. Obviously, it was a different outline because Molly has written many books since then. So, <laughs> so as a result, no problem. As a result of that different outline, I then went ahead and wrote The Enchanted Broccoli Forest. But I could not start that book until I'd seen your book, too, because I didn't want to be redundant with, with you or, or, you know, so that I was, was blissfully unaware of all this, thank goodness, <laughs> or I would have really felt the pressure, believe me. Oh, no, you had no idea who I was. I was just some little hippie up in Ithaca, like, drawing this hand-lettered stuff, and I, I, all my books took me four years and were hand-lettered because I, I didn't have a typewriter. Cause <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so I, we, I do have a tremendous debt of gratitude well, to, to, I, to I, Anna. I, I'm so glad that we got to be here together to do this. It's so much fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. Yeah. 
so that's that's all we're done so now let's <laughs> gossip <laughs> well uh, let me say that that uh, one of the things that that I like about uh, these books well cherry clafuti this the final recipe and get cooking it's, it's, I've been telling her about this not too much so this is the last thing I'm gonna say about this this is a, one of the best desserts you're ever gonna make this will absolutely justify the cost of this book 10 times over because you're going to serve it to your friends and you're going to think, oh my God, this is like a $15 dessert that I got at some fancy schmancy restaurant. And it costs about like 35 cents to make. And that's, I think, something that you'll find through both of these books is that you can make better food for so much less money. And actually, it's less effort. By the time you get your carcass into the car and go to the restaurant and try to order and stand there with all these other people and come back, I mean, Christ, you can make most of this stuff. I mean, uh, the, these soups, the, the green soup, you can have green soup ready for yourself all the time. And then if you're a carnivore, you just, you know, you cook up a sausage and you throw it in there. And that's, <laughs> that's that. I love this. She tells you how to pronounce clafouti. I think that's great because some people feel bad when they don't know how to pronounce one of these, you know, foreign names. Well, we, we <laughs> have a microphone here that we can uh, pass around. Does anybody have any questions? Uh, comments, suggestions. Okay, here. Camera. Hands up. What about the suggestions no, part? <laughs> no, no, no. We want to record you. I just want to know how in the world an undergraduate could write a cookbook while she's in school, and how in the world a high school student wrote a cookbook. I, I'm oh. mystified. I, I, I can actually answer that. Um, the the thing that happened with me was it it really was. I, I had to learn to cook because I had to uh, eat and survive and I could not afford to go out. I was the exact textbook case of the person that Molly is writing her, her book for now. The person who leaves home, goes away to school, has never really cooked and has to learn to cook. And then I started to um, <coughs> write things down because all my friends who would come over and eat, and I, when I look back on this, it's so funny because my friends would come over and eat and they'd go, oh, Anna, your food is so good, you know, you should really write a cookbook. And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea, I should, you know. I was like, you know, 20 or something. I realized we were all just poor, starving students. They would have said that to anybody who gave them a home-cooked <laughs> meal. <laughs> now I have some context. Now I look back on it, you know, and I, but at the time I just thought, oh yeah, why not, you know? But there were very few cookbooks then. There, there, yeah. there were so few. There were, you could name the cookbooks that were in print then. Well, and for, yeah. and for vegetarian food, there really wasn't, there, there really was, um, what, what Molly, what, what was it you called it? Remorse Cuisine, that was it. Remorse well, we went to cuisine. this cafe a few blocks away <laughs> to get some hippie food before we were here, and, and yeah. it, it was Last really, really good. It was actually really Really nice. good, and we were thinking about how good it would have been like 30 years ago, and it would have been Remorse Cuisine. Remorse. Yeah, it was delicious. Remorse Cuisine. I was and shocked. It, so so I, I felt like I, I wanted to um, figure out a way to eat that I would really like, and that was about delicious tasting food and wonderful. And, and I started, yeah, I was a vegetarian, and so that's what, I was sort of becoming a vegetarian while I was doing it. And I just started writing everything down. And um, I have to say that um, <coughs> I wasn't making as much progress on all this writing everything down, to answer your question, until um, our government helpfully invaded Cambodia and we shut down the university. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, what, that's when everybody did a lot of other things. That they, You know, all classes were canceled. The term was canceled completely. Everybody was sent home because we had been, uh, I was at UCLA then, and we had been, uh, you know, occupying various offices and having sit-ins oh, and days. so forth. And, uh, and yeah, so they just, they just canceled the rest of the term and shut down the university. And, uh, and, and I remember that. I remember it was like an awful time and, and also a time of great, um, just uh, enormous changes for a lot of people and a lot of, um, and a lot of things going on. And I sort of, at one point, um, just worked really hard on writing everything that I had to say about food. <laughs> I kind of retreated into my kitchen, you know? But that, it, it, it's, an, it's an odd thing. But it was sort of like having a wonderful hobby. That's what it was for me. And that's what food and cooking has always been for me. I've never done it professionally. Uh, I've always only done it as a, just a, a really enjoyable 
joyful act. And uh, well, so. Oh well, thank you for <laughs> thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Any you, other what questions? What are your two um, go to? What are each of your go to recipes? Like your home. What do you always keep? You, what do you always keep in the cupboard or the refrigerator for your favorite? I make go -to? green soup probably you know every week. <laughs> some some version of it. I have green green soup. I mean, it sort of became a cult thing for a while after I first wrote about it in the L.A. Times years ago. But in this book, I have I, I think I have two chapters devoted to different kinds of green soups. I mean, it's sort of an obsession. But um, yeah, that, that would probably be the, the most frequently made dish in my house, and then everything else. Mine would be greens with pasta. Mm -hmm. And I have d d um, various different ways I do that. Um, and if I don't have time to get the pasta in, it's just the greens. But I tend to, and this is, um, my current model is a, a flipped model um, of, instead of pasta with greens, I have greens with pasta. Mm -hmm. So it gives you the, especially those of us who are, you know, as you get older, your metabolism kind of slows down, and you can't eat as much pasta, but it doesn't mean you need to give it up. So um, and my favorite way to, to cook, um, I, I like it with broccoli or broccolini. My favorite way to do broccoli um, is the twice-cooked method, which I have in both this book and, like, a couple other books. If I like a recipe, I'll keep putting it in the books. And it's, it's actually um, very efficient because I put one pot of water on the stove, and I put one saute pan on the stove, and I didn't get a chance to talk about my pans, um, but I have a couple of surprising things to tell you about them. One of them is that I only wash them about every fi fifth or sixth use. Um, that saves on cleanup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I imagine so. In a <laughs> um, I've discovered that like the pan gets seasoned and the stuff sticks on it. It's a little bit on the burnt side. That's, that's a seasoning, mm -hmm. up to a point, of course. So, but I'll have the, the, the boiling water and then the saute pan. And into the simmering water goes chopped broccoli which gets basically in and out, like show it the water, scoop it out with, I love, a spider is such a great tool. You scoop out with the mesh and, and let the water shake off, and then you have the pan heating, olive oil in the pan, take the broccoli that's just been blanched, put it into the saute pan. I can't do this without my talking with my hands. Then the pasta goes into the simmering water, so you're saving water. The broccoli's cooking the second time around. It got blanched, and now it's getting the second part, the finishing in the olive oil with some garlic, a lot of it. And then when the pasta's done, the spider pulls the pasta out. And what I used to do in my old, because my cooking is, I don't know about you, my cooking continues to evolve. It's really different now than it was even oh. five years ago. So I used to, whereas I used to take a huge amount of pasta and put little stuff on top, and now I take this stuff and put a little pasta in, as I just said. The other thing I do, though, is in this big wide pan, and wide is the key word, because I used to use tall pans. I used to be vertical, now I'm horizontal wider the better because you want as much of the food to have contact with the heat because that mm -hmm. is seasoning. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. contact is seasoning. Mm -hmm. So the broccoli's on the stove in the olive oil with the garlic and the pasta gets drained in the spider and guess where it goes? Into the frying pan with the broccoli. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I saw it, I cook it all together in the olive oil. It's not finished. It's not, it's not cooked enough if you just put the pasta on the plate and put the topping on. They have to you know, it mingle it together. Every, so every good pasta uh, chef in, in every restaurant yeah. does that exact yeah. thing. That's they always that. finish them in the pan. So if, but if it's not broccoli, it can be a big mess of greens. I have a lot of greens in my garden. Kale, collard, red mustard, green mm -hmm. mustard, spinach, chard. You cook a whole bunch of that. And instead of with garlic, um, you, can, you can use a lot of sweet onion. And have the onion be you know, big pieces of crunchy sweet onion. And then put the pasta in with that. And sprinkle in a little feta cheese and let it melt into the whole thing and uh, maybe a little bit of toasted pine nuts I always I love topping things with nuts I, I just want to quickly say that um, about that uncooked uh, unwashed pan <laughs> so here's the deal no, no back here's the deal <laughs> I was there's this bakery oh you know what I, I'm afraid to say it might not be there anymore it was a bakery in Northern California a hippie bakery I just love hippies it's so funny because I have an 18 year old daughter who says t uh, when she was 16 or 15 in, in that phase she said to me Mom, you just have no idea what it means to be a hippie. She's like a Berkeley kid. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I have no, what? You know, because she's, uh, don't even get me started. But anyway, she goes to a hippie camp. She goes to Wavy Gravy's camp up in Northern California. And this might be too much information, but I just really love Wavy Gravy's circus camp. But she's been going there her whole life. And there's all these hippie businesses up there, like the business called Nobody's Business. And, you know, and then there's this hippie bakery. And so I went into the hippie bakery one day, and I bought this loaf of bread that was gumbo huge. Like, it just had a life of its own. And <laughs> this great big bread that, I, that was this big, and I 
it had a hard crust on it. I bought it for like five bucks, and I took it home. It was like my souvenir from visiting the hippie camp. Took it home, cut this wedge of it, took a bite, and it was unbelievably delicious. It had this complex, smoky, multi-layered flavor. It was like bread that had been cooked from some starter from the Stone Age or something. I don't know what it was. It was amazing. Drove back up to pick up my daughter from camp, stopped back off in the bakery. I said, how, what, when, who, where, how did you do this bread? What is that flavor? And they said, oh, yeah, we haven't cleaned our oven in like five years. <laughs> I said, that's the answer. Well, that's the secret to Chinese red cooking, right? They have those broths that are like passed down between generations. And they're always simmering. The broth is always simmering, and things keep getting added to it, and then people get famous for their broth, and then they, the, the, yeah. the son gets married, the daughter-in-law gets some of the broth from the mother-in-law. It's you know. the undead broth. It's amazing. You know, in, in the, um, You're I, scaring me. Does anybody know? Um, I don't do this in my own house, but I did, this I is actually a real it. thing. I, I have heard about this, and no, it's no. like, so you my know, read about it in National Geographic or something. My you know. daughter loves to cook. She's, she's now turning 19, and we cook together, and we have this little game play how long can we go without cleaning the pan um not that we don't love to clean the pan although mm. but it's like we keep using it over and over for stir and it gets up to a point where we're not there yet where it's not it's, you know it's not getting better and better but it's it's pretty it's pretty wonderful well in the in the course of one recipe that's definitely true if you saute an onion in a pan and then you want to brown some garlic to throw on the very top of the soup at the last minute, which is sometimes a fabulous thing to do, mm -hmm. uh, you use that same pan and you put a little more olive oil in it and, and, and it sort of absorbs some of the other flavors that are in there and the garlic goes into that. And you know, So within the course of one recipe where all of those things are going into the same place anyway and you keep developing more uh, of, That's of the word, you know, that Layers of flavor. But then, yeah. you know, Marina Garicello, you're your esteemed, brilliant editor told you to explain deglazing of the pan, and that's the whole yeah. that's the whole idea of deglazing yeah. is that you don't want to lose that. anything. Right. The pan holds on to some of the of yeah. the rest. I, I once had a, a private tutorial from a French pastry chef, and um, anytime any little piece of the dough or the batter went anywhere other, well, it did kind of travel because I was he was he's al he was also teaching me the the Tai Chi of it, you know, the kind of physicality of mixing. And so he said, just focus on the mixing. Don't focus on the batter. And so I did. <laughs> Next thing I knew, <laughs> and he said, he said, eh, mon dieu, <laughs> there is your recipe. <laughs> and every little speck of dough and batter was the recipe. And like he had me climb up and scrape it off. He had me climb up and scrape it off and put it back in the bowl. <laughs> off the ceiling? He said, this you Molly, don't overshare. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, anyway. He, we didn't. We nothing was wasted. <laughs> we deglazed the ceiling, and it was it was fine. It was fine. I need to keep her with me, so I'll stay on the message. <laughs> Actually, I probably have more comments than questions. Your um, vegetarian split pea soup has been a mainstay in my life since my daughter was three years old, which we've made together many times. Thank you. Did and you the put lentil the sesame oil. Sesame I'm, oil in the, in the Actually, though, years ago I did not because that was very exotic okay. uh, in the 70s for me. But today I would definitely do that <laughs> um, as the lentil soup as well. Um, I think eating people eat out because it's a status symbol. I think it's a, a way of saying um, I've arrived for a lot of young people. My daughter went through that stage. She's now in her middle 30s and now she sends me pictures of what she's making at home and ask people advice over Facebook. So I've watched her evolve out of a sort of an immature relationship to food into a more mature relationship with food and it's been really gratifying. Um, I also think that I admire the two of you for sticking to your guns and continuing to um, learn about cooking in your own kitchens. Thank you, Thanks. I appreciate that. And also, I really appreciate, um, I, Molly, I just looked at your cookbook briefly. It's so much easier to read a recipe if not only the ingredients are itemized, but when you give the directions and it's one, two, three, four, rather than one huge page of directions for a recipe. I'm not sure how that ever got started, but I really appreciate that you're and I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't looked at yours yet, Anna, but I really appreciate that the, the directions are set up that way. No numbers. Anna writes little. I don't want to put you <laughs> off, but <laughs> I, right. I, it was suggested to me, and I said, you know, I don't want numbers. I don't want it to look too technical. I don't want numbers. I just, but I like to break things up into a lot of paragraphs. 
As long as there's something that's differentiated, so it isn't yeah. one huge page yeah. of here's how you make this. No, I, I break things up into little paragraphs, and I really use, actually I use the same technique that we use when we're writing screenplays, which is every time it's a new action, it's a new paragraph. It's a new, you know, it's a new I indentation. And I, I just want to mention also um, the un unsung heroes of any cookbook are the designers. Um, the way a cookbook is designed is, is critically important. And the size and shape of the page and the font and um, how in the space between and this yeah. book is this book breathes it's got air <coughs> and you can just you, you I can read it from here I'm from here I mean it's just it's we, really we worked very hard to get that we fired one whole set of, uh, of people um, and then went on with another set and I have to say I have to give a lot of credit to Maria Guarnaschelli she really gave it that air that you're talking about she said she, she, she let it have this very loose, open format, which I think makes it so much easier to read. And thank you for releasing them in paperback yes. first. That we appreciate oh, that. Yeah, good. Well, they lay flat in the kitchen, so they can get more easily splattered with whatever you're yeah, cooking. Yeah, but hardbacks last longer. <laughs> do, either, do either of you find yourselves getting more, um, for lack of a better word, political about food uh, as more and more of the corporations are trying to make people believe things are healthy when they're not? Everything is political. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly what you mean by getting more political. I would say that in one sense, for me, I've gotten less political, but, but possibly, uh, I mean, in terms of overtly stating things in political terms. I've never been, I've, I've never been um, proselytizing. You know, I always just wanted to write about food that was delicious and fun and that I liked and that, that's what I wanted to do. But I think now I really have this feeling of mission, I guess, is the way I would put it, which mm -hmm. is to try to find a way to help people not be intimidated by the idea of home cooking because they're losing something wonderful. And, it, and, and I, I just think that if everybody can enjoy a little bit of that, it's just a nicer world, you know? Well, it's a way for everybody to be creative. I mean, that's the thing is that you can use these recipes. Molly and, eat, and eat better. Yeah. Molly puts it explicitly in there. There's, You have the basic recipe, then you have a get creative. And, and that's these are things you can improvise on, too. We have um, another question. I, I just I wanted oh. to answer that question, too. Um, I actually think that in, we are in a, a sort of a food emergency worldwide. And we're in a lot of emergencies worldwide, but it's it's become almost impossible for me to ignore issues of procurement, grow how food is grown, where it comes from, um, who's profiting from it, how it's being marketed. I, I think there's sort of th that cat is out of the bag, and it's very um, important to. S I, f I, I feel personally, I feel a sense of mission. Also, I keep wanting to. There's a part of me that keeps wanting to retire and just do art and, you know, just kind of, you know. Mm. Also, not just for my own sake, but for the sake of the young food writers who are coming up. There are a lot of food bloggers out there um, and, and a lot of young people, really young, like 25 to 35, who are writing passionately daily, mm -hmm. uh, chronicling mm -hmm. their cooking, mm -hmm. and they're fantastic. And I keep wondering, and I, I'm not fishing for you to say yes or no, but I keep wondering, okay, I am, but... Um, if, if I, you know, I should hang it up and make room for the next generation to do, you know, to do this work. Um, but then I keep realizing, no, I need to keep, and I've also been told by friends and colleagues, you know, I need to keep doing it. It's, an, it's sort of a mission to keep it going. But at the same time, I need to, um, I, I personally need to at least partially address uh, the crisis of procurement of, you know, the, the peak soil, the peak water, all those, all those things. And I also, it was um, not an easy choice for me to put a meat chapter in this book. I'm not against meat eating, and I eat some meat. I'm not a pure anti. I'm not a. I don't. My definition of vegetarian isn't anti-meat. Most people assume it's an anything but meat. But for me, it's just I love vegetables, and that's another subject because I know lots of vegetarians who eat no vegetables. But it's all about a statement about meat. You can tell how I feel about those people. But um, um, I put the I put meat in this book partly because I wanted to learn how to cook it, <laughs> and also because I wanted to to teach the young or the new cooks who already loved meat how to cook it for themselves so that they wouldn't be buying it at fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to teach, I wanted, I, it's, I actually tell them in here, if you're going to eat beef, buy beef that has been raised 
sustainably that has been pasture raised, it will be more expensive and you will be buying less of it and you will be eating it less often. And, ma and to, t to make it a special treat, I made a decision that to do that with both, I have a seafood watch recommendation here, a, a pastured chicken and pastured beef, saying, please, if you're going to cook these things, source them this way and eat less of them. There's not enough. And that's why I have, like, for example, salmon patties, because it's taking salmon, in, which is a, a you know, rare fish that's, gonna, that's endangered, and making it go farther. Well, um, you know, when I cooked your when I cooked the salmon, there's a, a baked salmon dish mm -hmm. in here. Poached, I cooked that. Yeah. yeah, poached. I cooked the poached salmon, then I had some left over. I just turned that into salmon yeah, patties. That's what you're to do. And, and, and yeah. then I had leftovers and I froze them. Now, Such you know, a good student. they were. Yeah. Then I was able to, you know, pop them out and, and cook them later. Yes. But so anyway, so that's I'm, what you can do. Um, it's, it's just easy. I know it's important to address this, and that the people, the population who are interested in this book are also interested in that. So I try to divide my activism between um, just teaching people how to cook and. I have some. Uh, I I've become somewhat active in in the issue of procurement and food deserts, like in West Oakland and things like that. And uh, but worldwide, it's just it, it is important. And more and more, interestingly, more and more food celebrities are starting to be activists in this too. And I really take my hat off to them. And two of them in particular, because I really want credit out there where it's due. Mm -hmm. One of them is Rachel Ray, who has been working with on the Michelle Obama Healthy Lunch thing. And I, you know, she's so. At this point, she's such a big media star, crossover star into entertainment. But she's no, she didn't have to do that, and she's doing that. And I, the other person who's becoming really active in this is Mario Batali, and he's doing Meatless Mondays in all his restaurants now. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to take my hat off to both of them because they're such huge stars, mm -hmm. and they don't have to be doing that. And their their conscience is is in the right place. So, and I just want to say one more thing. I know I'm we're both yapping because we're both very verbal, but. Um, you know, it occurs to me to, to mention this, and I haven't even said it to you, but, you know, Anna wrote two huge books in the 70s and then another cookbook, um, The New Vegetarian Epicure. I'm, I'm not sure when no, that came in, out. In the 90s. And granted, there are, s there's, there are, there are over th well over a 1,000 cookbooks published just in the United States every year, and that doesn't include all the blogging. That which is, is every staggering. Blogging is staggering, too. That. There's so much of it. But I just want to say for the record that when out of the blue, suddenly after all these years, Anna Thomas came out with a new book, and, and, it, and it told me, this is what you're cooking now, and this is where your passion is now. I personally was, I felt, oh, thank God, there's Anna. She's still with us. Um, it meant something to me that this book was written by you. This book written by anybody else, I don't know if anyone else could, could have written it, but the fact that it's written by you means a lot to me. It, it, it's, it's, it, it makes me feel like, oh, Anna's still here. We're all still going. We're all still on the path. I really appreciate that. You know, yeah. I think it was encouraging to me. I, I have books in my kitchen that are like old friends and uh, th that I've used that, that helped me learn to cook. And so I know that can happen because I'm, I'm a self-taught cook. I learned to cook just by reading cookbooks and reading gourmet magazine, rest in peace, and, uh, and cooking and trying things out and changing them and doing what I wanted to do and then reading other stuff. And, you know, that's how I learned. And I think that all these thousand-a-year cookbooks that are published, I mean, good heavens, I had no idea. It's more, <laughs> it's it's more than that, actually. frightening thought. Um, a lot of them are not real cookbooks. I mean, I think a lot of them are just, uh, you know, uh, 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 promotional vehicles for somebody who's on TV or somebody who has a product or some, whatever. You know, they're, they're, they're published for other reasons, I think, a lot of them. Um, and a lot of them aren't really written by one person who's thinking about it and writing it and speaking to other people like them. And, uh, y y you know, that takes more time, I think. It takes more care. And I really appreciated the books that I had like that, the, you know, Julia Child's books and James Beard's books and Craig Claiborne's books and um, Robert Carrier was a big influence too. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people um, whose books I had, uh, Elizabeth David, who, whose books I read uh, over and over and, and, and whose sensibility about things I absorbed. And I really felt like I knew who was there on the page. And I, that's what I try to put into my books, and it doesn't happen quickly, and I don't do it. I mean, yeah, I'm doing other things, too, so I'm not writing cookbooks all the time. But I think that if you're thinking that way, um, you know, it takes longer. <laughs> it takes longer to do it, but it's more fun. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to kind of um, preface my question just by saying I think I'm kind of the stereotype of 
we wrote these books for. <laughs> and the, the reason I'm here Good. is because I picked up the mm. flap, you know, and I saw mm. it advertised because I come here every day. And I was like, do you want to eat really well? Yes. Are you tired of pizza? Yes. Do you love good food? Yes. And I'm like, <laughs> check, check. <laughs> and I'm 27, been married for four years, you know, my idea of cooking, and I do love cooking when I do it, but like I'll find a recipe that looks good and real simple. I'll go to the grocery store because I don't have any of the ingredients in the house. Yeah. I'll drop 30 or yeah. $40 on all the ingredients. Yeah. I'll come back and I'll spend an hour or an hour and a half or two hours chopping all the vegetables yeah. and yeah. you know, putting it all together. And I love it, but I'm so exhausted by the end of the night. Mm -hmm. And then I have a refrigerator full of leftover ingredients that I don't know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that was really fun, but I spent the same amount that I would have spent for a takeout meal. And since it's just my husband and me, it's really easy. But now that we're thinking of having kids, it's like I really got to learn how to cook and like be, you know, like know what I'm doing. Make it sort of simple and practical and ongoing yeah. rather than an event yeah. each time. And yeah. I think that yeah. my generation, my experience anyway, is another, I like the, your term food emergency is, you know, like it or not, primarily it's still women in the kitchen and women are being taught to hate food. Really? Well, you know, it's a cultural thing. Oh. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. Food is not something no. to love. Yeah. Food is the enemy. And yeah. my mom mm. cooked when I was growing up, but she cooked mm. like, you know, bake a chicken breast, make up a frozen vegetable, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it was because she didn't learn from her mother because right. they had a very negative relationship where food was concerned because yeah. I think that's where it started. This is such a good point that you've brought up. And I think that um, it's a very different way to approach cooking and, uh, and actually a lot of what Molly was talking about earlier about how she sort of thinks ahead like oh, they, I'd like to do this and this and this and there's several things I'd like to do and I, I'm not nearly as organized as Molly I have to admit right now but um, what I do is um, I find that if you people ask me how can I how can I change my cooking how can I improve my cooking and eating what's the best piece of advice you can give me I always say improve your shopping mm -hmm. that's what you need to do and that was gonna be my improve question. your shopping so what what you do what I do what I what I try to do is I try to do as much of my shopping for food as possible at the farmers market I also belong to a CSA where I pick up a basket once a week I don't know what's going to be in it I just get what I get and I keep a lot of fresh produce in my house it tends to be the less expensive of the kind of foods that you can buy in general in very general terms produce is not the most expensive thing in the world so even if some of it doesn't get used up and it goes into the compost bucket in the end you're still ahead if you're using most of it you know that that's how I look at it you have to give yourself permission to just not be perfect all the time too you know um, and and then if you just get in the habit of shopping for a lot of uh, things that appeal to you good fresh produce and then don't don't think like oh I want to do this fabulous recipe I mean do think that way for those moments when you're really in that mood but think what what would I like in a sort of a simple way as an ongoing kind of thing? And I'll tell you, I, I love the idea. The one of the one of the things that I talk about in this soup book and one of the things that really worked for me in in the three years in the tiny kitchen was cook once, eat three or four times, you know? <laughs> cook a nice big pot of soup, and I, it doesn't even usually go in the freezer for me. It usually just goes in the refrigerator, and then I have another bowl the next day, and then I make another soup, and then they're in rotation, and then, you know? I mean, I, I, I think that way. So you really should think about cooking something where you're gonna have more than one meal from it, you know? Think about planned Planned overs, as we say, as, as opposed to leftovers, you know, and 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 really find a few very simple things that you love, and and I know that there are simple things that I love. I love making tortilla española, and that is great, cold or warm. Oh yeah, see, now that's something you can make. That you can eat it hot. You can with a salad. It's like a lovely meal. You can have it for breakfast with a roll the next day. Room temperature, it's perfect. I mean, if you have a good soup that will probably, most vegetable soups will be fine in your refrigerator for four, five, six days, you know, without any problem at all. These are the kind of things that will help you. And then when you get in the mood for that special thing, probably, you know, if you get into a habit more of cooking at home, 
a lot of those things that you need for that special dish will already be there like the great olive oil or the this or that, whatever it is that ran up your bill like that, you know, the spices, they're going to be there anyway because you're just sort of using them on a, on a daily basis. And when you have all those things around, you don't have to be confined by the recipe you'll find. Oh. Uh, you've got, uh, you've got, you have, you have extra celery, well, it can go into the soup. You, ha you have extra this, it can go into that recipe. You can just, you'll find yourself experimenting more and that's when you'll find yourself in those moments where both Molly and Anna were talking about where you're just saying, Oh, I think I'm going to, this is what I've got. Yeah. <laughs> this is what's going to go into tonight's dinner, period. And if you, you, you'll find generally it's good. Yeah. Rick, do we have time for one more question? Sure, I okay. think so. All right. Where are we go? All right. Sitting here, I've realized that you two have influenced my cooking for longer than my mother has. <laughs> um, I mean, my oh mother my God, and my I grandmother really got me inspired. <laughs> well, that also says a little bit about me, too. Um, my, uh, my copy of the Moosewood Cookbook, I have rebound. I actually copied a friend's good index and bound it in there as well. Sorry about that index. I got hate mail over it. <laughs> actually, I know which edition you got then because we changed the, we changed the index in 1986. Uh, so that was a pre-86 edition. It was much pre-86 in, yeah. in Rochester. You're from Rochester? No, I went to school in Rochester, Oh, but though. you bought your book at the Village Green? Uh, <laughs> probably did, yeah, yeah, probably just, did. Just taking um, you down the uh, regret, the... Uh, and I sort of are going to be dating in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, go on, really. Um, I, well, actually, listening to uh, the, the previous question, I sort of lost mine, but um, thinking about uh, the, the evolution of your ingredients, uh, just taking a... Uh, an annual reference, if you look at newspapers, they usually have a special edition of what to do for the week after the Thanksgiving turkey. Mm -hmm. um, what you do with the leftovers and how it eventually works its way into the soup. Um, but uh, my, my question is uh, with the um, uh, farmers markets have gotten to be really good nationwide. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that used to be pretty regional, but now it's, it's everywhere and also the availability of ethnic spices mm -hmm. has become so much better. How, is, uh, how have the two of those influenced where you all are going? For me, completely, totally. I mean, farmer's markets ch just changed everything. Because when I was writing the first uh, vegetarian epicure, I mean, you know, it was like what Molly was describing about when she'd call her mother to check the supermarket in New York, you know? <laughs> I mean, there, you know, you could get iceberg lettuce. Maybe you could get romaine lettuce. I mean, you know, it was pretty. It was it was pretty limited, and now um, it's fantastic because the farmers markets. Even if you're not living right by a farmers market and you don't go uh, all the time to a farmers market, you're still benefiting from them because everybody had to step up their game. Mm -hmm. You know, you go into the into the supermarket now, and there's just such a wealth of stuff available that wasn't there before. And I like to explore and try things and use things. And, uh, uh, you know, I like to, uh, Molly was talking about how she likes to make sure that the ingredients that she's using are things that are going to typically be available for most people. And I think that's a very good thing to do. And I like to do that with about 80% of my recipes. Uh, when, I, when I'm thinking that way about a book and looking at what, what I've got in there, um, I always leave room for a few things that really stretch and push it and, you know, that are interesting and that are provocative and that maybe use something um, that, that's a little harder to find but possibly worth the search. Or maybe you live in a place where you can get that and good for you, you know? <laughs> like I talk about that with the porcini soup. I make a big... Uh, effort every year to get porcini to make that soup because they don't know I use flash frozen porcini oh. now because it's very where I live it's totally not porcini land where I live is nopalito land I live in a place where you can go out and cut the little fresh green paddles off the nopal cactus in the right season and they're delicious and wonderful that's not something that everybody has in the pacific northwest they can get fresh porcini in season people can get different things but it's nice to um, give people the idea that there are lots of wonderful and exciting things out there to try and that they might still have in their future in some way but i try to limit that to about maybe 
15 or 20 percent of what I'm doing. But the greater availability of everything mm -hmm. has really been so liberating and wonderful and exciting. You know, it, I, and it's something about American culture and our attitude about food. There are several things about it that um, Italians would find insane, just insane. Like our division, our, the firewall with delicious food on one side, but food that's good for you on the other, and those are two separate things. And so it's either delicious mm. and unhealthy. No, but I'm talking about American culture in general. Or it's good for you, but it's the remorse cuisine. It's like necessarily beige and unseasoned. And, and you know, so I would say crunchy, that crunchy. My, my mission, if I have one, and I do, I mean, I have several different ways of describing it. One aspect of my mission is just, just get rid of that, of that division, of that firewall, and just uh, help people understand that good food and good for you food needn't be two separate categories. I can't. St I always have hated the adjective decadent in the name of dessert recipes. It's like it's ascribing, as you said, it's ascribing to the food like it's got kind of it's out to get you type of thing. But um, along these same lines of of thinking of of the American kind of compartmentalization of food, there's something in our culture about an attitude about vegetables that has just always been you the you factor the other factor or you know, put it way off to the, and so if you ask any American, in most, in our culture mostly, what did you have for dinner last night? Nine times out of ten, they name the meat. They don't say, I had this beautiful sautéed spinach with garlic. Oh, and by the way, there was a steak next to it. You know, it's always about the meat. I had fish, I had chicken, and the vegetables aren't mentioned, and the side, and it's just not mentioned. So vegetables have been this kind of unspoken kind of subculture. And so one of the things that, one of the many, many, many reasons I, I appreciate the absolute, absolutely exponential growth of farmers markets mm has -hmm. been that it's kind of making vegetables a little bit less stigmatized. We still have a long way to go. There's still, you know, there's an ad on TV that makes me want to just, oh, oops, you know what, I just realized something. I actually did some spokesperson work for this company, so I can't <laughs> name them. Actually, I, the, I probably can at this point. But there's this one ad that makes me want to strangle my television. Not that I ever watch TV or anything. There's one ad where, um, I, I don't know if you watch TV. <laughs> you, you live in Santa Cruz, so you probably don't. But um, there's a, a, this woman made this beautiful dinner for her and her boyfriend, and they're sitting and dining together. And the number of fruits and vegetable servings is this little balloon over their head. And they each get a one because they're both eating their vegetable. And then and she's made him this beautiful Brussels. So she says, I think it looks delicious. And he takes a bite of vegetables. And then she picks up, she does, she's distracted, and he, he secretly spits it out and gives it to the dog. Ha, 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 big joke. We all understand because we think vegetables are stupid type of, you know. And then his bubble goes to zero because he didn't get it. But then he goes to the refrigerator and takes a glug of one of those fruit and vegetable juices, and then it goes up to three. And that's like, it's an anti-vegetable propaganda ad. We should all oh. complain to the net. But it's like, still, in this culture, that's a big laugh. That's ha, ha, ha. He, she couldn't get him to eat his vegetables. She's a fuddy-duddy. When we say you have to eat your broccoli before you can get your ice cream, like it's a punishment. Yeah, but I st when I had four-year-olds, I gave them some, you know, spicy peanut sauce to dip their broccoli yeah. in, and then, you know, the kids love that. But, um, but it anyway, it's just, it just we live in a culture that tends to stigmatize healthy eating, A, and the subset of that is stigmatizing vegetables. Mm -hmm. And long way of answering, yes, I think farmers markets have taken us a long way. Um, away from that stigmatization. It's, I think there's still plenty to do. There's so much more to do. We need, we need a whole victory garden culture, which we're fast approaching with the economy. Yes. Well, I'm a, it seems like I'm the only one here that we had a farm. We, I still own the place, and we had chickens and ducks and geese, and we ate the chickens and ducks and geese, and I learned to cook by watching mm -hmm. my mother. And now I'm having a battle with a vegetarian who I'm letting her keep ducks on my place because I made a joke about eating them and my geese are 12 years old and I I don't know why we, some vegetarians seem to have such bad manners or I don't, oh, I don't please. understand we can't answer for them we <laughs> a hard time just shoot them <laughs> just shoot those ones with bad manners just okay. slap them down I had a hard time eating our You know, carnivore versus vegetarian. It shouldn't be that way at all. And yeah. actually, you're, you're, you're talking right to here. two people it's here who, who, are, who are really, the. I think Molly and I are probably the most 
uh, anti this kind of division of anybody you'll ever talk to. I mean, my books have never been about telling people, don't do this, don't do that. You know, they're just, uh, because I don't think you, first of all, I don't think you get anywhere with that, you know? <laughs> Even if you wanted to do that, I don't think you get anywhere with it. And and I, I just try to offer people delicious uh, um versions of, of what I like. And, yeah, the the, you know. the um, militant uh, a animal rights vegetarians um, are pretty, you know, they're pretty, uh, let's see, uh, they, they, they're, they're pretty militant. They're, they're not eating the yeah. ducks because now we're practically not talking. <laughs> I don't get no. it where my geese are 12 years old. No, it's crazy. They're my pets. On my back. No. You should tell her that uh, soil is made up of, or of living organisms, and every time a vegetable is grown and harvested, there are organisms that are tiny that give their lives for her vegetables, that there's no free lunch here, that no. either the so that any soil that's <coughs> going to have enough going for it to be able to grow a vegetable, the soil is living and has to eat. It will eat one of two things. It's either it's, it's, either it's living organisms or it's chemicals. Tell her to take her pick. Tell her she needs to understand about agriculture because that's ignorance, honestly, mm -hmm. because everything is living organisms. And where do you draw the line where you're taking a life? Every time you pick a vegetable, something is dying for that for your dinner. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. I need, to, I need to bring all the questions up front. Sign your books. Get your books signed. Uh, buy your books. Uh, thank, thank you all for coming. Um, Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. 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 oh my God. Oh. <laughs> that's that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. You, so so you used uh, your your fourth burner as a book rest there. I can tell. <laughs> that's okay. Oh, bless your heart. Also, it was so reliable that I had my yeah. foodie friends, and I would just make something out of it and invite people over for dinner. Yeah. Oh, I'm so delighted to hear that. Thank you so much. Bless your heart. I want to thank everybody for coming. In two weeks, now, in two weeks, I've got Alan Chews and Peter S. Beagle. They're going to talk about creating worlds with words. These guys are some of our top writers. You've heard Alan Chews on NPR. You've seen Peter Beagle's movie, The Last Unicorn. It's going to be a really great discussion. So come back in two weeks, and we'll talk again about books. And I'm going to keep this up and keep bringing in some wildly different authors every month. So come on back. Thank you for joining me. And, and support uh, your local independent bookstore as you're doing, because this, yes. this is a right. dying breed. And yeah. if it weren't for independent bookstores, I, I can tell you I wouldn't be here. Yeah. No, there would be no Moosewood Cookbook. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't be here either because we're in an independent pork stars. <laughs> <laughs>You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.